Israel has been 40 years in the desert in preparation for this moment. So here's Joshua. He is 90 years old at this point. We know that he served Moses for 40 years. Moses died when he was 120, so it, it might be in our minds, you know, that, uh, that David was a little kid when he fought Goliath. It might be in our minds that Joshua was a little kid when he began to serve Moses, but that, that really isn't the case. Joshua is about to cross the Jordan River at flood stage, likely. It's going to require a miracle, just like it took to get across the Red Sea. And nonetheless, Joshua has been commissioned by God, prepared for this moment. Uh, Israel is not a perfect nation, but Israel has entered into uh, a pleasing to the Lord, gospel obedience, that has brought them to this moment. Um, and so, this is where we find ourselves. Forty-year period of purging the fighting men from Israel due to the congregational refusal to take courage and set aside fear to take the land given by God. And uh, they developed a significant level of faithfulness and trust in God. And there are a number of reasons that I think it would be important to, to see that, not least of which is right here in chapter 7 of Joshua. Chapter 7 of Joshua, this is the initial defeat of Ai. This is regarding the sin of Achan, as you see here. Our focus uh, will be in a number of places, but let's look here at this level of faithfulness and trust in God. Now, you may again, you may say, well, how does pointing out Achan's sin indicate a level of faithfulness and trust in God? Well, I think you'll understand as we read this in verse, verses 10, 11, and 12 of chapter 7, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Now, we've, we've hit on this theme before. It is likely that the expectation is, is there was there was an absolute declaration and demand of perfect, pristine obedience by the people of Israel before they entered into the promised land. That simply isn't true. Uh, they uh, they didn't they didn't they were already told uh, in Deuteronomy uh, and in several other places that it wasn't because of their holiness that they were going to come in and push out the unholy people of the Hittites and the people in Canaan. But nonetheless, we recognize that they're already at this time, over a course of a 40-year period where they had instituted uh, the ceremonial aspects of the law of God, they've instituted sacrificial atonement, they've instituted the moral law of God that God was, uh, was not only holding them accountable for, but also affirmed again and again and again that this was the way to live. Not that they would earn life, but that they would then enter into and enjoy the life that God had provided for them and given to them simply by following the ways of the Lord, the instruction manual, as you were. It is likely that you've had the experience that, you know, you, you use a tool or you, you, you repair an object or you, you, you build something and you, you look at the instructions later and you're like, oh, it would have been a lot better if I had seen this or done this. Now, that isn't always true. 
Some of the instruction manuals written these days are not necessarily helpful, but nonetheless, I think you, you understand the gist of the idea here. The sin of Achan was, was a, a certainly that which prevented Israel from going further, and this was dealt with pretty quickly. Now, we also see a covenant renewal here. Uh, so, the covenant made with Moses was renewed in chapter 8. We see that here. I would ask you to turn to chapter 8 in Joshua. Now, if you recall back in Deuteronomy 11, there was a, there was a lot of um, very important visual kind of help as Moses was bringing to the people this, this covenant of God. And so what we see here is in the backdrop, there were really the, all of the people of Israel, man, woman, boy and girl, little infants, all those people were all present as they are here in Joshua chapter 8 for this covenant renewal. And what you see is behind them, you had Mount Ebal and you had Mount Gerizim. And, and Mount Ebal, uh, you know, was in one place. Mount Garrison was in another place. The congregation was split between the two. And there was this incredibly, uh, you know, important visual so that they would be able to see the curses will come if you don't obey the Lord. And I'm going to speak of this as I look at Mount Ebal. And the blessings of God in the case of Mount Garrison. And we see that right here in chapter 8. Beginning in verse 30, At the time Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal. Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the Law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered on it a burnt offering, burnt offerings to the Lord, and sacrifice peace offerings. I'm looking at verse 33. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel among the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Now, here's a marginal note for you. It shouldn't really be marginal, but if you may wonder to yourself, why is it so important uh, to these people? Why is it so important to these Reformed Baptist people that when we worship, everybody's there? Well, this is one of the reasons. We see that when, when Joshua renewed the covenant, and we see other places where the Word of God is proclaimed, who's there? Everybody's there. Everybody is there. Right? The women, the children, the little ones that are being carried, they're all there. And this is a very important idea that we just catch, really. This is, if you want to understand a concept of the regulative principle of worship, this is, this is a significant part of that. Why are we all here? Well, it's because God has called us all here, right? Together, that we might, we might come into the presence of the Lord. So we see here the covenant renewed. We understand the sobriety. Uh, they've already fought Jer- Jericho. They've already fought Ai. And here the covenant is renewed in chapter 8. And so the big flick for Joshua, there's 24 chapters in the book, basically split evenly in two. The first half of the book is the conquest of the land. King 
after king, people, after people, after people uh, are conquered. And then the second half of the book is the allotment, basically, of the land to each of the tribes. And so I would propose to you that a very, very significant theme in the book of Joshua is the nature and prosecution of a holy war. The nature and prosecution of a holy war. So you can say, okay, well, so we had, we had kind of, uh, you know, war lessons today, uh, in church. And so what we have here is the nature and prosecution of a holy war. And that may be kind of freaky to us, right? But it's important, again, for us to understand what it is, what it is that God's doing in this. Right, And we will see uh, very much, in a sense, a companion manual of the, the prosecution and nature of a holy war when you look at the book of Judges. For the most part, Joshua is how to do it. And for the most part, Judges is how not to do it. Okay, And so that's kind of what we see. Now there are, of course, many other very, very helpful themes in Joshua as well as Judges. But nonetheless, I would propose to you that it would be helpful for us to think of it in these terms. Now, before we begin to talk about the prosecution and the nature of holy war, let's look a little bit at the outcome. I would draw your attention to Joshua 11, verse 19. Because it may be in your mind that this was just a total, a total absolute... Bloodbath. In many ways it was. But there's a very important statement that's made in Joshua chapter 11, verse 19. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel, except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. Now, we know that the Gibeonites uh, had the Gibeonite deception, and that is an important aspect of the book of Joshua, because what you have with the Gibeonite deception in the book of Joshua is simply this idea that if I fail to ask counsel of God, things will go differently, right? It's a very simple It's a very, very simple uh, process and situation, but nonetheless, it is a principle that we see in the book of Joshua. Because you see, even, and it it often is the case for people that embrace the sovereignty of God, we may be inclined to say, well, prayer doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I do in prayer, that God's going to do what He's going to do. That's right. But you see, what we also understand is God's people living under a wonderfully sovereign God is that He uses this thing called means. Means. He, he has decided and determined to do much of his work through a process of means. And prayer is a certain aspect of that. So what, what the Bible reveals in the book of Joshua is that had the children of Israel requested counsel of the Lord regarding the Gibeonites, things would have gone differently. And so they involve themselves in a significant tangle because of that situation. But nonetheless, we see that God, of course, brings good of bad. And that's true in that case as well. So let's look back at Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. And so really two ideas here. Two ideas here that I'd like to draw your attention to, and I'd like to draw your attention also to to some historical and some theological, really, bases for what, how do we, why do we approach, really, life as a redeemed individual, 
in this way of warfare? Uh, why is that appropriate? Why, why, why is it that we uh, seem uh, to those of us that, uh, again, embrace the Scriptures as God has revealed them to us, why is it that we would even embrace or speak of these things? And uh, this, is, this is revealed to us in a number of places in the book of Joshua, not least of which right here in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 1. So verses 1 and 2, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. This was no surprise, of course. God planned, purposefully planned out uh, not only the life, not only the birth of Moses, but also his death. Um, And so we see that here. He says, Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. And so what we have here is is an effectual call. It begins with the commissioning of Joshua. And so now uh, it's without apology that I propose to you biblical and theological language for the way that Joshua enters into the promised land, okay? Joshua was called effectually. Now what does that mean? Well, in the same way that God calls His redeemed effectually, in other words, what that means is, is that it works. It's effective. It will, it will have its intended purpose. Right? So, when God redeems an individual, we know that he, that he calls us effectually. We know that there are many that may hear the gospel. Right? And you, may ask, and you should ask yourself the question, why don't, they, why don't they believe Christ? Why don't they follow Him? Why, why, why am I inclined to follow Christ and my neighbor isn't? Well, the Bible reveals that an aspect of that is the effectual call. This idea that it, it isn't because of anything in us, but it's because of something that God has done. And God is telling Joshua in a number of different ways in these, in these nine verses in the first chapter of Joshua that his calling and his commission to go out and do what God has called him to do is absolutely effectual. What I'm calling you to do, you will absolutely be able to do because of the resources that I give you as one who is not only known to me, but known to me savingly, united to me as God. So there's the effectual call. Now again, this is a pattern that is true for all of us. As we enter into life with the Lord Jesus Christ, that first step, of course, uh, is something that happened before the creation of the world. But nonetheless, God has determined that in the process, chronologically, uh, children, that He will give to us an effectual call, that He will give to us life. Life that's effective. Life that we can enter into the battle of life. And so that's what occurs right here. begins with the commissioning of Joshua. Now, his first action... What is his first action here? Go over this Jordan. Go over this Jordan. That's just four simple words, right? When you got showed up to your first job and your boss tells you to do something and you you like you have no idea what that is you I mean 
What? You want me to do what? How did, what is that? That's very intimidating. I've never done that before. And so Joshua is standing with all of the army of the Lord, all of the people of God behind him, right? He's looking at not a little ribbon stream, but he's looking at the Jordan River overflowing its banks, right? If you were to consider, again, where were they just at? Okay, so, so we know that the Jordan River uh, is by some considered one of the deepest, really, trenches in all the world. I mean, the Dead Sea is the lowest point on earth, by the way. And that's where the Jordan River flows. So you can imagine, I mean, children, we know about gravity, right? You start really high and you go really low. Velocity. Lots of water, right? And so that's what Joshua is looking at. And what does God say? Go over this Jordan. This is an effectual call. This isn't the hardest thing Joshua is going to do, but look at how he begins. Now, I certainly wouldn't want to press this too far. But nonetheless, we have an effectual call, and we also have a sacrament, if you will. We're going through water. Okay? And that's Joshua. Okay? If you want some help remembering this, uh, I don't think it would be wrong for you to think of it in some ways in those terms. Now let's look at uh, verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. That's a, a significant aspect of the nature and the prosecution of a holy war. And that is simply this idea that our commander owns all the ground that we're going to. That's the nature of holy war, right? The place where He wants us to go, spiritually, He owns. That's, that's kind of a different sort of mentality, right? Because, because we certainly, uh, and I would propose to you that uh, likely, uh, in your memory and the access that you have to the history of warfare in general, were we to look at uh, the, the Second World War in the history of the world, it would be, in many ways, a war that would be notable and helpful and commendable for us to understand a certain prosecution of war. And even in the, the moral high ground uh, that the Allies had in the Second World War, they didn't really have this aspect, right? So much. Okay? The ownership before they went in of the ground that they were to take per se. The destination is owned by our commander. Now I encourage you to think about that a little bit as you think about, again, spiritually we're talking about a level of holiness, right? God owns that place. The destination is owned by our commander. Now let's look at verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Now, when God redeems us, when God redeems us, the Bible reveals that uh, our life in Christ is guaranteed to grow. Now, we're actually a little bit past planting season right now for you gardeners. Uh, there's still time. 
probably, but nonetheless, uh, you you hard-charging gardeners, you've, your seed's already in the ground. It's been in the ground for a very long time to this point, right? But sometimes you get seed, and some of it's actually guaranteed to grow. They would actually put that phrase on the list, and you may say, well, that's, I, I think I, I like that idea, guaranteed to grow. And it's associated with this effectual call. But Joshua is is given promises by God that he will succeed. Every place that you go is mine, and no man will be able to stand before you. This is a promise of success. Can we claim that promise? If we're God's people, absolutely. Now let's look at verses 6, 7, and 9. We see children, a phrase here that's the same in each of these three verses. Be strong and courageous, verse 6. Verse 7, only be strong and very courageous. Verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. How many of you like simple things? You like easy. You like work that doesn't take too much work, right? You, uh, you, you'd rather have some resources kind of left over. You'd kind of like to do this with one of your hands tied behind your back, right? You'd like to have a little, a little left over. You'd kind of like to get off early. You like that idea? Well, that's not the kind of that's not the kind of commission that Joshua had. It isn't the kind of work that God gave him to do. As a matter of fact, we know that for a number of reasons, not least of which is we've already read the book of Joshua, right? But also because it requires strength and courage. I mean, when's the last time your boss said, "Hey, I got a big job for you to do," and don't fear, be strong. As a matter of fact, you can't do this without being strong. You can't do this without courage. How how does that make you feel right now? Let's say you've got a task to do. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the realm of of some sort of uh, place where you clock in every day. The reality is is we we have things before us to do all day long, right? Again, what is it what is it like? It doesn't mean you have to choose something that's hard. But this is, again, I propose to you that Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, is, is, is again, it's principle of the nature and the prosecution of holy war. And the point that I'm trying to make here, and the point that God is making in Joshua chapter 1, is that holy war is very hard. It's very hard. As a matter of fact, it's very frightening. Right? But God owns all the ground that we're going to. And He is He is exhorting us to strength and courage, right? And He gives that to us, you see. And so this is what we have before us. Strength and courage is required to succeed. Had, you, you like a job where... Yeah, I don't, I don't really have to be that strong for my job. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kinda, I can kind of lay back. You know, I can, I can fill up on, you know, pretzels. 
Snicker bars, that's all I need for my job. I don't need to think about what I eat or prepare myself in any way, right, for the work that I'm going to do. But that's not the kind of job that, that is the nature of the holy warfare that God calls us to. So we see that strength and courage are required. Now I'll draw your attention to verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Exhortation not to be frightened. Anybody ever exhorted you sincerely with that? Have you ever been in a situation where somebody with you has said, don't be afraid? It was a fearful situation, right? A situation that that certainly would draw you into responding in fear. Now here's the the mighty man Joshua. I mean, he's, he's right next to Caleb, right? We've already heard from Caleb. Caleb said, hey, you know, I'm just as strong today as I was when we first set out on this exposition 40 years ago. Please keep your promise that, that the land that, uh, that you promised to give me that I'll have, and it may be that the Lord will give me success as I go into the battle. But here's Joshua, the mighty man Joshua, and God saying, don't, don't be afraid. Why did he say that? But did he say that because there's nothing to fear? He said it because, hey, you know, it's a, hey, it's an easy day here, man. I mean, you got, you got, you got, we're just going to call you easy money, okay, Joshua? Because, I mean, every, every day is just, just, it, it's just you know, you're going to get done every day at like 9.30. I mean, you know, I mean, you're, going, you're just going to chill, you know, for the rest. No. No. It's a fearful thing, right? And God is, God is exhorting him, don't be afraid. I'll be with you. That's the idea. That's the idea. Now, the, why, why would he be afraid as well? Well, the land is owned by God, but he's never been there. I mean, Joshua's a leader in general, right? He's calling people. We'll see some of the strategies you read as you read in the book of Joshua, the way that God prosecuted the war, the holy war in Canaan. We'll see, we'll, we'll see how that goes in the book of Joshua. But nonetheless, Joshua's never been there. There's this thing called the fear of the unknown. Have you ever experienced that? The fear of the unknown. Yeah. It's a common occurrence for us, right? It may be going to school. It might be a job. It might be having a baby. Now, in the realm of holiness, does God own the holy ground where He wants us to go spiritually? Yeah. But you know what? We've never been there. We've never been, again, in spiritual terms, to that level of holiness that God is calling us to. And this is the nature and the prosecution of a holy war. Right? So we are called with confidence and strength to go to a place where we have never been. There's a bit of unknown there. God's Word is sufficient for us. The fellowship of His people is absolutely necessary. We don't go alone. Right? 
to go with God's people. Now, let's look back at verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Sufficient, easy to understand instructions. You like that? I like that. Sufficient, easy to understand instructions. Again, verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. So here's General Joshua, right? Here he is. He's got, again, he's got 600,000 fighting men behind him, right? He's about to cross over the Jordan uh, in flood stage. Okay, and you might you might think of all you might think that Joshua is rolling through his head uh, the weaponry that his people have. They may be thinking about shields and knives and this sort of thing. Certainly, those were all a part of this holy war. Although we know that God did much without weapons. I mean, uh, again, uh, we 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 know that the Lord fought for His people, right? But what is Joshua exhorted to here? Well, all this other stuff, no doubt, he has. Aspects of that that are being taken care of. But nonetheless, he's talking about the Word of God. He's talking about a holy warrior. He's talking about meditating on the Word of God day and night. Spiritual means for success are made clear in an exhortation for meditation. Why is that? He says, God, uh, God, God calls Joshua that the words, my words shall not depart from your mouth. That's an interesting way to say that. And you shall meditate on my word day, day and night. You shall meditate on my word day and night. And you may say, oh, well, that, that's great. You know, I, I've done what the Lord has called me to do. I've, Joshua, you know, you think he had in the back of his mind that, yeah, yeah, uh, God, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll uh, let, let, me, let me get to the battle here, but, but, but okay, I'm meditating on the word of God. Is that, is that the idea? Well, no. No, it was the direct means by which Joshua would be able to prosecute this war. Right? In other words, the way to finish well is to involve yourself in the method to finish well. And that's what he's given to him in the Word of God. As a matter of fact, he uses this phrase, So you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So Joshua never never pinned the words to Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way. He never did that. He, that, that was not an idea of Joshua's, right? So, so God set before him the methodology in meditation upon the Word of God, and this was the means by which Joshua would, would enter into the task that God had given. There's no difference for us, right? The prosecution, the nature. What I mean by prosecution, again, is it's not that we're, it's not that we're slaying Warfare, it's that, that's how we enter into, that's how we carry on a holy war, right? Is we see that God's instructions are for us the means by which we meet the end that God has given to us in this holy, holy ground. This is the idea. Now I'd like to look very quickly at a few really historical and theological underpinnings for this mentality. Because you, 
this, this may seem abrupt to us. It may seem unnecessarily sort of harsh. Um, and, and, and again, we, we have a, a, a wonderful warmth in our midst that I'm so very grateful for that we want to cultivate in this that God has given for us to do. But nonetheless, when we think about the world that we live in, the culture that we live in, we think about the tasks that God has given to us as a church that we might delightfully proclaim the good news of Christ to those not only in our neighborhood, but across our own nation and into the world as we enter into this idea. This is what God has called us to do, and it is the nature of this. And I'd like to draw your attention to a few ideas that, uh, again, that would help us to understand the, the thoroughgoing sense of uh, this mentality of warfare such that God would continue to use us. And I draw your attention to a book that John Bunyan wrote. You've heard me refer to it a number of times, and it's a book entitled Holy War. And I'd like to read to you a few of the things that uh, his editor, George Offer, wrote. He said, Man's soul is presented in the simile of a town which surrounded itself, excuse me, surrendered itself to a mortal enemy. It's besieged by its lawful king with all the trappings of warfare and is retaken and reformed by Emmanuel. This is the setting of Bunyan's great allegory, Holy War. And again, the point that I'm trying to make is is that we look at the book of Joshua and we may be inclined to shove that to the periphery of our minds as a piece of narrative history of Israel. But what I'm proposing to you today and what I'm proposing is the purpose for one of the grand purposes for the book of Joshua for us today in the year 2022 at Providence Reformed Baptist Church in Joshua, Texas is for us to understand that the book of Joshua presents to us the nature of and the prosecution of holy war. Okay? Now, so George offers talking about Bunyan's book, Holy War. He says, To the Christian who hopes for peace, war presents a most fearful and foreboding prospect. The Christian has no desire to see garments rolled in blood, to hear the dying groans of the wounded or the heartbreaking cries of the bereaved, especially the widow and orphan. The most delicate Christian must become a stern warrior. The most sensitive ear must become attuned to the war drum of the devil. We must fight the good fight of faith or we can never lay hold on eternal life. We must be engaged in this holy war and fight or perish. I'd like to read for you Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. The Bible says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? Well, there's a couple of things, and one of them is this idea that that God besieges us spiritually as He calls us to Himself. Consider all of the spiritual trash that must be worked through, all the spiritual enemies that must be worked through, such that we will submit ourselves to a loving Father. And the same process, okay, is also involved in us becoming more and more like Christ as people are redeemed. Regarding my salvation, George Offer says, it doesn't matter whether the siege was long or short. The vital question is, has my heart been conquered? Do I love Jesus Christ? If I do, it's because He first loved me and He changes not. So what happened in man's soul? 
Now, what happened in man's soul is this, complacency and watchfulness. Mere formality and prayer. Carnal security invaded the mind. What's carnal security? Well, carnal security has a, a number of long tentacles that seem to touch a whole lot of things, but not least of which is this idea that, you know what, we're fine, we're good. You know, we, we, we're Reformed Baptist people. You know, we got this thing in the bag. We, we have the moral high ground. We understand the theology behind all this, and we're good. That's carnal security, right? Are the things of God, the ways of God, the Word of God, the underpinnings historically, theologically, are those important? Yes, they're absolutely vital. But we can lull ourselves to sleep in complacency and lack watchfulness. And that's what happened in Bunyan's man-soul. And he says this, So in man's soul, uh, what we see is an army of doubters is cast upon man's soul by none other than Satan. They doubt vocation, they doubt grace, they, they doubt faith, they doubt perseverance, they doubt the resurrection of Christ, sound familiar? They doubt salvation, they doubt the glory of God, joy, contentment, they doubt all these. Have you ever doubted those things? That's spiritual warfare. That's an inundation by the enemy, right? And so what does God call us to do? Well, He calls us to go back and consider the, the nature of holy war. And how to prosecute that war. George Offer says, The very sight of this accursed host is alone sufficient to paralyze the soul which is not imbued with courage furnished by God. Now, in Bunyan's initial poem, as he begins the book, he says, To speak not of Mansoul's wars is to remain unknown to themselves. To speak not of spiritual warfare means that we will, to ourselves, remain unknown. At the end of his poem, as he begins the book, he says, Mansoul was the very seat of war. The very seat of war. And you may say, well, not, not in my life. That's not how it works for me. Okay, well, let's, let's look at that for a moment. Let's, let's look at Romans chapter 7, why don't we, and let's see how you line up. Because the Apostle Paul did not have that experience. Everything wasn't fine in Apostle Paul's eternal soul, day in and day out. Let's look at Romans chapter 7. Now, I recognize there are some that, uh, uh, there are some good men that disagree on the passage of Scripture before us, but nonetheless, the primary, frankly, basic, authorized, if you will, uh, I shouldn't use that word authorized, but nonetheless, uh, the typical Orthodox understanding of this passage of Scripture is what I'm going to read to you uh, and, and proclaim to you right now in Romans chapter 7, verse 21 through 25. Here's the Apostle Paul. He says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God. Now we've heard David say that same thing. The man after God's own heart. Verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law. Another law that, that isn't nice, that, that, uh, that is sometimes unkind. Is that what it says? Well, no. No, it doesn't say that at all. It actually uses waging war 
against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Mansoul was the very seat of war. I wonder where, I wonder where old John Bunyan got that idea. Romans 7, perhaps? So this is, this is the holy war that's in our midst, right? How are we doing with that? Well, our confession, the London Baptist Confession, says this in paragraph 13. This sanctification extends throughout the whole person. Though it is never completed in this life, some corruption remains in every part. From this arises a continual and irreconcilable war with the desires of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In this war, the remaining corruption may greatly prevail for a time, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying Spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes. That would be the P portion of TULIP. The preservation, right, of the saints. We, called effectively of God, will succeed in this holy war that we're entered into, right? This idea. So again, you may wonder, well, why, why this idea? Is this, is this a new... No, it's not a new idea. Again, this is the way that the saints of old understood their life every day. The holy war instigated by God was certainly a real physical war upon the real people of Canaan. A war considered needful by the Holy Creator God, not because of the pristine holiness of His chosen people, Israel, but because of the wickedness of the people of Canaan, who had been soaking up the common grace of God for many generations. One of the most important ideas, and we've had set before us over the past number of years, something to our memory and our minds has been, frankly, very oppressing and unholy in a number of different ways. And we have come face to face with the purposes of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might enter into and be bolstered into recognizing the cost of liberty and freedom in Christ. And I want to encourage you with a number of things. And this is, this is written about well in Rod Dreher's book, Live Not By Lies, and I'm not going to take time to, to draw your attention to that, which is, actually has very much to do with the subject at hand. But suffice it to say that the primary aspect of this holy war that the Apostle Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 7. The, the, the significant aspect of application that we see... Now, you may say, well, Joshua was prosecuting a physical war. Yes, he was. But what was behind that? Why? It was all about spiritual holiness. As a matter of fact, there's a fascinating part to the book of Joshua that's, that's really, really incredible... 
And it shows up just as they begin their work in chapter 5. And there's not another place like it in all the book of Joshua. And so here's Joshua, right? He's been commissioned. He's been effectually called. He's been given the Word of God that he's to meditate and focus on as he goes as a means of his accomplishment. And what we see here again is that Joshua is placed on notice as if he had forgotten something that's urgently important. And this shows up in Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and he said to him, Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No. No? Wait, that's like... No to both those? Okay. But I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy. Joshua did so. Now children, you'll notice in the Bible, when you read about When you read about humans engaging angels, sometimes they do attempt to worship those angels. And what you'll find in the Bible is if they're only angels, they'll not receive worship. What happened here? Well, he received worship. Now, there's no other situation like this in the book of Joshua, but but the angel here of the Lord... The Lord Himself, the commander of the Lord's army, shows up to Joshua and He says, Now I'm here. What does that mean? Well, I think it means a number of things, but not least of which it means we can start now. Right? And this is not only that, but this is spiritual in nature. This is spiritual in nature. Were they just taken over the land of Canaan so they'd have a place to be? No. What was vitally important was the holiness of God's people as they went into a place unknown to them. And so we should recognize that in the prosecution of this holy war, while we absolutely stand against, in many ways, dark human forces that would press against us in our desire to be faithful to Christ, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. But the greatest sense of fulfillment is going to be as we, as individuals and as God's people, recognize that as we choose to suffer for righteousness' sake, we then begin to enjoy true liberty in Christ. You see, this is one of the absolute most dramatic distinctions between between the people, frankly, of God that choose to enter into God's purposes and those that don't. Because in our culture, in our day, the concept of suffering for the name of Christ has to do with me wringing my hands and cloistering in a corner and praying for better days. So I suffer because I cannot do what God has called me to do. No, 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 no. No, that isn't biblical suffering. 
Biblical suffering is when you demand to do what it is that God has called us to do. And you take what comes. You take what comes. That is the cost of discipleship. And only when we enter into that delight and desire of faithfulness, such that, again, respectfully, honorably, we say, No, sir. My God has called me to do this to worship you on the Lord's Day. My God has called me to sing and proclaim the glory of God to you day in and day out. And I must do that. I must be faithful. And that's what it means. That's the cost of discipleship. And that also is entering into true Christian liberty. Yes, we pray that our culture changes. But will we change? Will we enter into this ground that is more holy and owned by our God? Let's pray. Father, we do ask. We do ask, Lord, that You would be to us, Master and Commander,